Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. James Wilson was one of only six men to sign both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. He was one of the delegates from Pennsylvania, and when he was at the convention, his influence was second only to James Madison in structuring the Constitution itself. But there was one aspect of the Constitution where his opinion didn't hold a lot of water with the other delegates. He had argued in their debates that it was counterproductive to require people to swear oaths to uphold the Constitution. Oaths, he said, provided what he called only left-handed security. You put your left hand on the Bible, you raise your right hand, and you swear fidelity to the Constitution. But good governments didn't need people to swear allegiance, and bad governments shouldn't demand loyalty, he told the other delegates. And he worried that people might think, once they've sworn an oath to support the Constitution, that they couldn't change it. But Republican government required that it be responsive to the people, and the Constitution itself provided the means by which it could be changed. People had to be free to criticize the Constitution. Despite Wilson's objections, Article 6 of the Constitution that was proposed by the convention requires U.S. senators and representatives, as well as members of state legislatures and all executive and judicial officers, state, national, doesn't matter, to take an oath swearing or affirming that they will support the Constitution of the United States. If you hold public office, the Constitution demands your loyalty. And by statute, any individual who's elected or appointed to an office in the civil service, think government bureaucrat, or uniformed service, think law enforcement and military, has to say the following. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter. So help me God. For the president, the Constitution goes further and provides unique oaths specific to the office of the chief executive, to faithfully execute the office of the president of the United States and to the best of one's ability to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. In his first inaugural address as president on the eve of civil war and amidst a growing secession movement, Abraham Lincoln mentioned this oath of office six times. The oath required that he support the whole Constitution. Even the clause that required fugitives from service or labor to be delivered up on the claim of the party to whom such service or labor was due. This was part of the bargain, Lincoln assured the southern states, and he would not construe the Constitution or law by any hypercritical rules, as he said. The Constitution, of course, never mentions the words slave or slavery and refers here only to persons held to service or labor under the laws of a state. But everybody knew this clause was meant to allow those who had escaped from slavery to be reclaimed. And Lincoln declared that, quote, the intention of the lawgiver is the law. Yet it was also the intention of the Constitution's drafters to form a more perfect union, as they wrote in the Constitution's preamble. And Lincoln's own oath required that he preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, including the union that it was meant to perfect. But when citizens disagree, as they did profoundly in 1861, who gets to say what the Constitution requires? It's another way of asking what the oath of office actually requires in concrete circumstances. What does it mean that you've sworn an oath to support and defend the Constitution? 
When Lincoln was taking the oath of office with his left hand on the same Bible that President Barack Obama would use to take his oath of office nearly a century and a half later, the Supreme Court had recently tried to settle the national political controversy over slavery in the 1857 case of Dred Scott versus Sanford. In that case, the court had held that the right to enslave others was, quote, distinctly and expressly affirmed in the Constitution, that enslaved Africans and their descendants living in the United States, whether or not they were free, were not and could never become citizens of the United States, and that Congress had no authority to prohibit the spread of slavery in the federal territories, as it had done in 1787 in the Northwest Ordinance and then again in 1820 in the Missouri Compromise. On that day, Lincoln insisted that he could take the official oath of office with no mental reservations, something he did by distinguishing the Constitution on the one hand and anything the Supreme Court might happen to say about the Constitution on the other. Lincoln thought the Supreme Court got each of these questions wrong in the Dred Scott decision, and he didn't think the Dred Scott case had somehow settled these questions as a matter of constitutional law or political practice. He thought slavery was not distinctly and expressly affirmed in the Constitution. Far from it. Every implied reference to slavery used only the words persons or person, and the responsibility for their enslavement was left with the states. There was nothing in the Constitution to stop Congress from prohibiting slavery in the federal territories, as it had done in 1787, and American citizenship was not, or at least need not, be racially coded. I do not forget the position assumed by some, that constitutional questions are to be decided by the Supreme Court, Lincoln declared. And he insisted that the outcome of the Dred Scott case was legally binding on the parties to the case. He wouldn't dispute the outcome between Mr. Scott and Mr. Sanford, and after Scott's private manumission in 1857 and his death in 1858 was a moot point anyway. Yet at the same time, Lincoln reflected, the candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court, the instant they're made in ordinary litigation between parties in personal actions, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent tribunal. And so Lincoln as president would be bound by the Constitution as he understood it, but not by the principles or the logic of the Supreme Court's decision in Dred Scott v. Sanford. Lincoln's attorney general, the former U.S. representative from Missouri, Edward Bates, issued his opinion shortly after Lincoln's inauguration that free blacks born in the United States were citizens of the United States and were entitled to the benefits of national citizenship. In practical terms, this meant that the administration would, for example, grant a passport to a black student to study in France and grant a patent to a black inventor from Boston, both contrary to the logic of the Dred Scott decision and its teaching about American citizenship. When Congress passed a law in 1862 emancipating those enslaved in the territories and prohibiting slavery's reintroduction there, Lincoln signed it. And Lincoln could only have done those things consistent with his oath of office if he didn't equate what the Supreme Court said about the Constitution with the Constitution itself. A year after signing the law banning slavery from the federal territories, Lincoln did something even more drastic. He issued the Emancipation Proclamation. It was an executive order that emancipated all persons enslaved within any state or even a part of any state that was then in rebellion against the United States of America. It's easy for us looking back to criticize the Emancipation Proclamation for not going far enough, for not simply outlawing slavery across the nation. But there's an important reason why it didn't do this, even if Lincoln had thought it was politically prudent to do so. He didn't think he had the constitutional authority. He issued the Emancipation Proclamation as an explicit exercise of his power as commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the United States, underscoring in that document that it was a time of actual armed rebellion against the authority and government of the United States. 
An interesting historical precedent for this exercise of executive power was the proclamation from the royal governor of Virginia, Lord Dunmore, in 1775. Known as Lord Dunmore's Proclamation, it promised freedom to anyone who was enslaved who escaped into the British lines and enlisted in the fight against the American colonists. Unlike Dunmore's, Lincoln's proclamation was not contingent on anyone taking up arms against the Confederates. It was universal in its covered jurisdictions, and it set into motion the chain of events that would lead to the formal abolition of slavery nationwide, with the ratification of the Constitution's 13th Amendment in 1865, just eight months after Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered to Union General Ulysses S. Grant at the courthouse in Appomattox County, Virginia. Fast forward now 100 years, from Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation to the summer of 1963. Standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial, Martin Luther King Jr. pointed his listeners back to that proclamation. Five score years ago, he began, pointing back a hundred years. A great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. A great beacon light of hope, but still a promise that had not yet been fully realized. In a sense, King said, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But it's obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. In the months after this speech in Washington, King continued to advocate for the passage of the Civil Rights Act. It was a piece of legislation that he later said was, quote, the order of the day at the Great March on Washington last summer. Less than a year after his I Have a Dream speech, King then stood with President Lyndon Johnson on the 2nd of July, 1964, at the signing of our historic civil rights legislation. The litany of evils King had protested against included racial discrimination and segregation in housing, employment, and education, and these were the evils the act was designed to address. There was, however, in 1964, a constitutional problem. A bill quite similar to the bill Lyndon Johnson signed in 1964 had already been passed by Congress and signed by President Ulysses S. Grant nearly nine decades before. But the Civil Rights Act of 1875 had been struck down by the Supreme Court as an unconstitutional exercise of legislative power. The power of Congress to root out private racial discrimination within the boundaries of the states isn't mentioned anywhere in the Constitution, at least not explicitly, including in the 14th Amendment, where the Equal Protection Clause applies only to states. But since 1937, there's been a sea change in how the Supreme Court has interpreted Congress's power to regulate commerce among the several states, extending the power even to those non-commercial activities that affect commerce. So there's a reason why in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it talks so frequently about things that are moving in commerce or that have an effect on commerce. The full story about the constitutional challenge to the Civil Rights Act leveled along these lines in the case of Heart of Atlanta Motel versus the United States is one for another day, but it highlights something as we close. There are important historic reasons why things develop the way they do, why certain arguments are made at one time and not at others, why our institutions are arranged the way they are. So if we're to understand the Constitution, which millions of uniformed officers and civil servants at both the state and national levels, including some in this class, have sworn to defend against all enemies, then we have to know something about its history. And to know something about its history, we have to know something about the history of the institutions that we're talking about this semester. And so we'll turn in our next discussion to a history of the Supreme Court as an institution, how it developed, how it operates, and how it goes about its work. 